Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome, everyone, to Beyond Surviving, the safe space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to receive support, resources, and share their stories. Beyond Surviving is about freedom, healing, connection, and even laughter and fun. Most importantly, it's about letting go of the pain of abuse and finally moving on. I'm Rachel Grant, and for those of you who don't yet know me, I've been a sexual abuse recovery coach since 2007, and I'm the author of Beyond Surviving, the final stage of recovery from sexual abuse. You can learn more about me and the Beyond Surviving program at rachelgrantcoaching.com. Now, today I'm very excited to have here with me my guest, Kelly Wallace, who's going to be sharing with us about her unique experience that she had of testifying against her paternal grandfather, her abuser, in court when she was just eight years old, y'all. Oh, my goodness. Like, already my heart is, like, soft and tender for this experience that Kelly has lived through. And we know the importance of, you know, testimony and the importance of bringing cases to trial. But we also know that the system, especially back in the day, even still today, not really set up to be very trauma-informed. So I'm really excited to hear about Kelly's experience and what she's learned and the wisdom that she's gained that we can now use as we think about what to do if we're supporting a child in this process today. 
So Kelly is an adult survivor completing work on a memoir that she hopes to shop around to literary agents and publishes in 2022. So if y'all know anyone, hit me up, let me know, I'll get you connected. I'm so excited that you she's writing and um, sharing her story in this way. She's also owned her own business for over 15 years and is embarking on a side hustle. You know, we got to do it, got to make them <laughs> make it work uh, in real estate. And I'm just so glad she's here because, you know, sharing her story and getting it out there just is something that so matters to her. So I'm very honored that she said yes to coming on Beyond Surviving to share with us today. So Kelly, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm really, really glad to be here today. Thank you. So I wonder if we could start back at the moment when the abuse that you were experiencing was discovered. How did that happen for you? Were Did you tell someone? Did somebody just find out, see what was happening? Um, I'd like to kind of understand that part of the process for you, the kind of the discovery moment. Mm-hmm. Sure. So when um, I was in second grade, I saw a child sexual awareness video and I it took me about 10 days to process what I had seen in that video. Mm-hmm. And I went into the kitchen of um, the apartment that I was living in with my mom, who is a single parent and my sister. And I walked into the kitchen and told my mom what was happening. It was like a Saturday morning um, in 1984, in December, 1984, Kids Incorporated was playing. Oh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> I just had a moment. You just took me back up to somebody. Yeah. Play so that was like that was like my favorite Saturday morning show. Yeah. Um, but I I walked in, told her what was happening, and my mom is is really a doer, so she jumped into action. Wow. And she she said, "I believe you." She validated my story, and she called the police. And um, it was a it was close to Christmas break, so. I think that um, she was, um, th- things didn't move as quickly because of that, of that Christmas break okay. that we had, but um, there was a, a warrant issued for my grandfather's arrest. My um, recall of events was like super, super good because the um, last time that it had happened was just a couple weeks before I saw that video or even a week before mm-hmm. all of this stuff happened like really close together. So that was the moment when I realized that what was happening between my grandfather and I was not normal. And up until that point, um, I didn't realize that. And back in 1984, we just didn't have that, that language about totally you know, much bad touch and all that stuff. So Yeah. yeah. Yeah, thank you. Our, our stories align a little bit timeline wise. It was, you know, 1985 when my grandfather started abusing me mm-hmm. and right around 1986, 87 ish when um, we, it was found out um, and my mom just happened to catch him in a moment of abusing me. Oh, no. And yeah, right. And it was her father, right? It was a maternal, mm-hmm. maternal grandfather in my case. And, you know, similar to your mom, she went into action mode, right? Like we're getting him out of this house. 
Um, though we never went any further than that, um, mm -hmm. as far as pursuing um, a court case. Mm -hmm. um, and I've never really talked with her about that or why that was or how that was. Um, yeah. Uh, but I, I know she went through the church a little bit, which didn't really lead to many good results, as one can imagine. Um, yeah. happens. So, yeah, so we sit in this era, right, this time and space when child sexual abuse prevention, awareness, body safety, body consciousness, these were very, you know, threadbare, you know, resources and conversations. And yet I'm so thankful that there was at least this video. Like, wait, it's almost, I can yeah. almost imagine the teachers, like, we can't talk about this. Like, we don't know how to, you know, facilitate a conversation about this. So we'll put right. on the video and sit the kids down, <laughs> have them watch it at the very least, like just yeah. trying to do something. And that moment of recognition of hearing your story, you know, being told. Can you take us to that moment just a little bit? Do you remember what it felt like? Was that a relief? Did you, were you wrestling with, do I then tell mom? Did it feel like it was very naturally the next thing? Yeah. What was that like it for just, you? It, it felt really natural for me to just walk in and, um, and share that with my mom. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't really have a strong recall of the language I used or, um, you know, my, it's because it has been so long. My, sure. my, yeah. my memories of that day are a little fuzzy, but um, it was just an, it was just a natural response. And I think um, when, you know, certainly after I told her, I didn't realize that the police would be getting right. involved. I didn't realize that I would be interviewed by um, detectives, police officers. Mm -hmm. um, my mom was asking me questions to kind of see, you know, because sexual abuse often comes out in chunks when children yeah. are disclosed. So she was she was having conversations with me to see, you know, if there were more incidents that happened because mm -hmm. he was charged with um, two incidents or two instances of um, sexual abuse and one happened at Thanksgiving and then another happened um, around my, my dad's birthday, October 5th. And so, um, but my, my memories um, go back. We think that it probably started earlier mm -hmm. because I was displaying some super odd behaviors okay. that, you know, just withdrawal. I was a very, very quiet child. Mm -hmm. And um, so there wasn't like an explanation for it. And my mom had been concerned. She had been growing concerned about me. And she finally had some answers when right. I disclosed yeah. and she started doing her own research about, about sexual, child sexual abuse. Amazing. Is there anything that comes to mind when you think about what it was about your mom or the relationship or the family cultures that had been, you know, kind of created or cultivated that made it easy. I can imagine the parents who, who are listening right now, like, oh my gosh, like, that's what I want. I want my kid, if they're ever hurt, if they're ever in trouble to just roll in. And it's like the most natural thing to just be like, mom, here's what's good. What's so here's what's up. Right. Is there anything that you think supported that facilitated that for you? You know, I think, um, well, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. So I think that it's, you know, off so oftentimes sexual abuse is, is generational. Yeah. And so I know that um, my mom, 
um, my mom is from Maine. She's like this hardened Northeasterner. And my, um, I know that my great grandmother, um, I think, I think my grandmother may have told her that she was being um, molested by a family member. And that great grandmother stepped in and told that family member to knock it off. Mm. And he did. So I think that um, my mom was very close with my great grandmother. I think that, um, you know, just seeing that modeled, um, (laughs) even though, you know, it is generational. I think my mom seeing that model, that was really helpful for her in having to, you know, navigate the situation with me. And so maybe before even this moment of disclosure, just in your family, there was this general space of like, we're going to talk, we're going to face things, we're going to tackle things. I love that as a, like a a beautiful representation of how we often think about how silencing is passed down, right? But even like the, like, but that can be passed down too. Like the, we're going to talk about things, we're going to be open, we're going to address what's going on. So, yeah, I'm thinking about your little, little self who, you know, takes care of her in such a big, herself in such a big, big way by speaking up. And then, yeah, the shock after that of like, whoa, wait a second, there are all these strangers here talking to me. So let's talk a little bit about that next stage in the journey for you when you started, you know, sitting down with police officers and detectives and and what was that experience like for you? What was the good? What was the bad? Well, I think, I think, you know, it, the bad was that it was re-traumatizing for me uh, because I had to tell the story over and over and over again. And so the, the, the interviews with the detectives, I mean, they were men, they were like, I think they were like maybe 30s 40s years old so like having to to share that with oh, yeah yeah <laughs> but you know the, the good thing was that um because of the the circumstances so my parents had gone through like a very nasty divorce mm-hmm. and there was a lot of um stuff going on with um the visitation so this was all of this was happening uh at my paternal grandparents house my dad was living with him and my grandpa was drinking like around the clock and so one of the issues that my mom had to bring up was don't drive with the children oh sure in the the and um so because of that there was a case worker assigned and um I think because of that and being reported to Children's Services Division, I was plunged into uh, individual and group therapy. So I was I was talking about it in, you know, all kinds of ways. The therapy was beneficial mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously early intervention, I think that was just so key for me. I was in, in individual um, therapy with a woman named Pam Crow, and then I was in group therapy with other little girls like myself. Mm-hmm. I've been molested by family members. So that was, wow. I think that group was like a six month long group. Um, but there was like Santra therapy. There were all kinds of different mm-hmm. modalities of therapy being practiced. So that was, that was the good thing about that experience. 
Yeah, that it, it did become an impetus for you getting some support and um, being able to to um, get in and talk about your story in safe spaces and this like counterbalance of being in the detective office, you know, the little room and with these adult men. And yeah, I mean, I think that's such a such an important thing as we think about how do we reform this process? One, can we make sure that maybe do you think it would have been um, easier or better for you if it had been a female detective or female police officers? Do you think that that would have made a difference? Should that be a part of the policy? that it's, you know, there's some alignment of gender when the interviews are happening? Oh, for sure. I think sure. that would have yeah. been beneficial. I mean, the one good thing was I wasn't taken to a, a, a police station. The oh, okay, got it. In the comfort of my home, even though yeah. it wasn't comfortable. Comfortable. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. You know? yeah. But there yeah. was, but yeah, certainly, um, yes, having, um, having that, um Start. I mean, there's a there's a campaign. There's a nonprofit that's called Start by Believing, and I think that you know that approach of you know really believing children in police settings should really, really, really just be adopted across the board. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah, it's such an important you know part of that process because this is the first kind of you know introduction into the criminal justice system and like what the experience and how it's going to unfold and is this going to be a safe place, right? Are there going to people who be people who I feel like I can trust and bond with and who are really going to be on my side on my team? For sure. Yeah, and so. All of this starts to add up to a day in court. And, you know, I, I'd really love some like insight into what that conversation was like. Was that like mom sitting you down and saying, okay, so here's what's going to happen and here's what we're going to do? How did they like even prepare you or help you understand what was going on? Well, um, I kind of knew peripherally that I would be going to court and that I would be testifying. So a trial date was set for April, which was five months after I disclosed. And then it was pushed back to July. Mm -hmm. And then it was pushed to December. So all throughout this entire year, I was I knew that I was going to have to testify at some point, but I, I just didn't know when. And um, the, the County where my grandfather was charged, my dad was actually the assistant, assistant district attorney Uh in that County. Uh Oh, (laughs) so it's, um, you know, it's an old boy network in Oregon, you know, a city of 15,000 people. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, everyone knew what was what was going on because mm-hmm. it was my my dad's dad right. charge. And so um, another thing that was happening, um, unfortunately, was that my dad chose not to believe me. And there, was, there were attempts um, by him to come to my school to try and, quote, tell his side of things. And basically, we think that he was trying to get me to back down. But because I I held so tight to what happened, I knew my truth, and I knew what happened did happen. There was no, there really was no stopping me, and so those those efforts were just Mm. failed. Yeah. Oh my gosh. 
For me, this is one of the places where I get the most angry about this process because so many of my clients who have as adults gone through this journey of going through the core system, it's the same thing. And I imagine so many children, young children are put through this as well. We're going to have a court date. Oh, no, we're not. We're going to have a court date or no, we're not. And that is so re-traumatizing. It's so ridiculous. Like uh, that for me is like the number one thing that has, like, how do we solve that? Because this constant delay tactic, it just prolongs and prolongs. Would you say that? I'm just curious how that part impacted you. Do you think, yeah, can you share well, a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, that impacted my um, recall of events because it was That too, yeah, right. Long. And so the the at the actual trial, um, everything was hanging um, on my testimony, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, when I testified, you know, I was, I was seven when I disclosed, but I was eight when I testified, still so young. And um, the questions that were that were asked to me by um, the prosecutor and even by the defense, like really tripped me up. Like mm-hmm. I was so stressed out on that witness stand. Like I, my mom said I was catatonic and I had to just take break mm-hmm. after break after break. And um the only person that was allowed in the courtroom with me was a CASA volunteer, a court appointed special advocate. So not even your mom. My mom was not allowed to be in the courtroom. Oh, F that. What? Oh my gosh, Kelly. Yeah. So what they did was they, um, they had her testify, just answer like five really stupid questions. Like what's your name? Where do you live? Where are you employed? And that when you're called as a witness, in a trial, you are not allowed to be in the um, in the courtroom. So mm-hmm. it was brutal. <laughs> it was really brutal. And mm-hmm. um, and he was in the room, if I remember. He was in the room. He's and there, right? He's there with his two high-powered attorneys, <sighs> his cowboy. He had a cowboy hat that he wore. Actually, it's several cowboy hats. But mm-hmm. that cowboy hat, because you can't wear a hat in courtroom, it was like right. Mm. on the corner of the desk and I remember that and um yeah there's you know it was just and my dad was so there was a when I was sitting in the back of the courtroom um like at sea there was a door and um there was a window and my dad was looking at me through that window <laughs> oh the redhead rage is coming <laughs> Oh my gosh. So there was just so much going against me. And there were there were other women. There were two other teenage girls at the mm. at that because my grandfather was a um volunteer with Future Farmers of America and oh geez, I'm blanking on it, but um oh 4-H. 4-H yeah. So he had access to children. And there were two other women um that were friends of my Aunt Mary Ann's that uh, came forward and said he touched us, but then we think that the family just my dad's family got to them and Shut they backed them down. Oh God! Okay. So yeah. There were others. Um, I had another family member come forward. Uh, she found me on MySpace in 2008. Said that you know the same thing happened to her. Unfortunately, she just has not had enough 
counseling. Um, she's, she has some like mental health issues, unfortunately, that make it too hard for her to be in my life. But I know there are, I'm sure there are tons uh, mm -hmm. of others, but no one has come forward. No one else. Yeah. yeah. I hate that you went through that experience. And then after all of that, the case, he's not found guilty. Right. It's ha what happened there. Was it just full out dismissed? Was he given a plea? How did that uh, out? He was found not guilty on both of them. Guilty. Yeah. And I mean, I I was talking about this this detail um, with my. I'm working with an editor right now on on my manuscript, and one of the things that I discovered in doing this last revision and and pouring through, I have all these court records. Pouring through those court records. I found out that the closing arguments on the prosecutor's side were 10 minutes long mm. and my grandfather's were an hour and a half. Wow. That's <laughs> so the attorney who was brought in as a special prosecutor, he may not have been doing his job either. So, right. so after, after everything was said and done, um, my grandfather filed a, um, a lawsuit against the state of Oregon, my mm -hmm. therapist, the detectives, and the case, the case manager saying that there was like this miscarriage. Wow, discussion. what nerve. And um, so there's, you know, the good thing about that is my dad was, was um, cross-examined under oath. And I have about, God, I have 75 to 100 pages of his testimony about, you know, his possible involvement. Mm -hmm. And it was, that case was dismissed because um, the attorney for the Oregon Department of Justice was like, you don't, you don't have anything to, yeah. this, was, this was carried out um, just fine. And mm -hmm. Stupid. <laughs> yeah. So when you think back to that moment, are you still glad that you testified despite the parts and the ways in which it was re-traumatizing? Is there anything from that experience right. that you find to be edifying or, yeah, glad about? Well, I mean, I don't, I would not wish that experience. <laughs> sure. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Child and teenager. But, you know, I think the one thing that, um, that I, I did come away with is that, you know, I know, I know the truth and mm. I can carry that through, um, through my life in applying it in, um, all kinds of different situations in my work, in my relationships and, um, really honoring my own truth has been, possibly one of the benefits of that um but like I said I wouldn't wish that <laughs> yeah it was it was re-traumatizing I mean so many elements yeah. of the story were re-traumatizing terrible thank you so much for sharing your story with us and we're going to take a quick break and then when we come back I want to hear a little bit about you know what you think um needs to be done such that this process isn't as you know, traumatizing as it is, has been, and also just to hear about your life today, right? Because one of the things that we know is that healing is possible, and and what are you up to, and how have you gone on to live and thrive, and and all of that. So we're just going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Okay. 
Are you a parent, guardian, or caregiver who is ready to be informed and empowered and part of a like-minded and supportive community committed to taking practical steps to minimize the risk of abuse for the young ones you care about? If so, then I hope you will go to bit.ly slash the empowered parent and learn all about the live training that I'm doing this coming April in partnership with Toby Stark. We are going to be supporting you in learning how to make child protective measures a part of your everyday, how to recognize the warning signs of possible abuse, practical and simple things you can do to minimize the risk of abuse, how to ask questions of the youth organizations where your children are hanging out, and how to respond to a disclosure, discovery, or suspicion of abuse. This is such a critical subject, and I'm so excited to be stepping into this world with Toby to bring to you this training so we can really bring into full life our vision of a world where adults own their power to eliminate child sexual abuse so children are free from harm, trauma, and shame. We have only 10 spots available. The training is happening on April 16th, so go to bit.ly slash theempoweredparent to learn more. Now, back to our show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Kelly Wells, who is sharing with us about her journey of healing. And it didn't, you know, this experience of going through the court system um, didn't lead to some of the results that you were really hoping for. And I can imagine that, you know, as an adult now thinking about that, you have some ideas about what we should be doing better and differently, (laughs) um, you know, in this process. And while we might think about it on a, a, a systemic level, I think one thing I'm super curious about is just like, if you're a parent, and this is the process that you're about to go through with your child, what can a parent, you know, reasonably do to try to minimize the impact? Because it's going to take some time for our systems to change, right? Um, so I'd like to start there, just like what can parents do to support a child through this kind of a process experience? I mean, I think that just the number one thing is believing because Mm -hmm. um, so many children tell an adult and they're just not believed. Um, I read a statistic uh, a while ago that said that the average child has to tell seven times Mm -hmm. before they are believed. So I think that is critical. Having um, just even one parent believe you is, um, and I think there's... uh, I think there's research that that says that if a child is believed that the chances of recovery are just so much greater. And, you know, I think, I think there is an certain in certain police departments, there is a model being adopted. This um, Ashland police officer, Ashland Oregon police officer developed this uh, reporting program um, for, not only child sexual abuse survivors, but sexual assault survivors in general to, um, you know, be able to report in a multitude of ways, like having a, having someone else report for them, mm-hmm. giving the individual, um, you know, extra time to report rather than having it all be required all at one time. Okay, sure. And that, and that model 
she, I think she's no longer a police officer with Ashland Police Department, but she went on and started a nonprofit that specifically re- resulted in um, helping police officers oh, and police departments yeah. work on um, reporting. So. Mm. That's really good to hear. Yeah, that those those shifts are happening and there are people out there who get it and are aware <laughs> that the way we've been doing it is not yeah. working. We need to make right. those changes. Yeah. 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 So when you think about, you know, life after this moment, of course, okay, well, so that's done. And then, yeah. you know, life continues and you, you know, um, I imagine continue doing some therapy and just trying to get on with life. And I'm just curious if you could share with us a little bit about, you know, what has most helped you in your healing journey? You know, I think the thing that has helped me so much is therapy. And I continue with therapy on and off. You know, I've been in therapy for the last like 12 years myself, because as an adult, my experience, um, in therapy is much different than it was as a child. Mm. And I, during COVID, I actually started working with Pam Crow again, who is the therapist that I had as a child. Yeah, so wild, it, I love that. Yeah, it's, it's really kind of come full circle with that. And yeah. um, writing about my experience has been very beneficial, like first at a therapeutic level, but more more so now as mm. as, a, as a, as the memoir has evolved at a literary level. So writing through that experience, sharing my story with other people and just hearing feedback that, yeah, your story is really, really messed up. Mm -hmm. That, um, that really validated my experience and continues to validate my experience. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I so love that you've reconnected (laughs) with Ms. Crow and she's getting to see you at this stage in your life. And I think that's really so important about, what you've just shared there is that I think a lot of parents hope and wish like, okay, I'll get my kid in for like a year of therapy and then like we're done. But it is true. Like at at different developmental stages that working through the trauma, integrating the trauma, you have ways of accessing it um, differently as you get older. And so being able to, you know, revisit that, I think that's just so important um, I know it can feel daunting to to think, oh my gosh, my child is going to, you know, need kind of constant support and, you know, therapy or whatever it might be. But it's important to hold that view because otherwise we start yeah. to kind of, you know, get short-sighted about it. And then as other, you know, I can remember like there were times in my life where I didn't feel like there was a lot happening, but then I would hit a developmental stage. Like when I got to 13 and I started being more interested in sex, then yeah. all of a sudden like, whoa, here we are. Like I love the trauma was really way more present for me in that moment and in that yeah. time of development. Um, and then, you know, at other stages in my life too. So making sure that we just continue to support our children as they grow. And Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so just moved and inspired by your story. I can't wait till you publish your book. Let me know because I'm going to share it as a book of the month with with my newsletter um, and put that out there. And for those of you who are listening who might like to connect with Kelly, you certainly can do that at kellywallace.org or on Instagram at Kelly the Writer, on Twitter, Kelly the Writer One, and all of that will be there in the show notes so you can um, go and learn more and make sure you're staying tuned as well for when Kelly's book comes out and everything else that's going on in her world. Kelly, as we start to wrap up today, do you have any final words that you'd like to share with our audience? 
Gosh, I think that the staying really true to yourself is um, and and your story. If you know what happened to you, happened like really just believing in yourself. I mean, that sounds super corny, but um, I would say if you know, like a lot of survivors have buried memories. Like if you have those buried memories, get help, whether it's through like um, a coach or a therapist. And, you know, if it's so beneficial. The other thing that I really just like to point out is that I was a child of privilege. Like I'm a white middle-aged lady and I had a lot, a lot of access to resources and can you continue to have access to resources? And I just, I feel it's so important to acknowledge my, my privilege in this world yeah. that a lot of people have not had that access to healing. So yeah, that's another place where we definitely need to do better yeah. <laughs> is making sure um, yeah. people of color have access, people of different socioeconomic, you know, classes have access. Um, I support that message 100 yeah. percent. And yeah, thank you for just naming and reiterating that we don't need a stamped guilty verdict for our story and our experience to be valid and true. Right. Yeah. Wow. Thank you again so much for being here and sharing with us today. Appreciate you. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening. Um, as always, if you'd like to make a donation in support of the podcast, you can go to bit.ly slash beyond surviving podcast donation. All contributions will be applied towards funding scholarships, the running of donation-based and free programs, and making sure, just as we just talked about, that those reaching out for support get what they need. Don't forget to visit rachelgrantcoaching.com to learn more about sexual abuse recovery coaching and to explore the other resources there. And please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a note and then come back next time because we have so much more to share. Until then, take good care of you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.